0: We are in the second week of our new series on the attributes of God and with this week we finally get to get to the actual attributes. And we start a five-week stretch into the incommunicable attributes, which we said last week are the attributes that are only ever true of God. So they're incommunicable. They're not communicated to humans. Humans don't share in these attributes like they do the other ones that we'll get to later in the series. And so these next several weeks, we really are wading into the uh, fog of mystery that surrounds God. In his essence, in his being, and we're going to have one tool to help us, and that will be scripture. It's the only tool that could ever help us navigate such a thing. And so, just so we're aware of what week, what each week is going to look like, just so you know, kind of the roadmap of how really each talk I'm going to have is going to look. We're going to begin each week just naming an attribute and giving a definition of it, just so we're on the same page. Here's what this word means. Here's this word. Here's what it means, and I'm going to offer commentary and explanation, um, basically answering the question, what does it mean that God is blank? Like, what does it mean that God is this attribute? And then we will turn to Scripture to see that this attribute is taught in Scripture in one particular passage and then spread out to other places in Scripture where it's supported um, and see how the Bible itself, better than me, presents the attribute, shows how, what it means that God is like this. And then finally, we will turn to, so what? what? What does it mean for us that God is like this? What 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 response should we have, or what should it affect in our lives? So that's kind of the scheme of what we're going to do each week, just so you know the roadmap we're going to be on. Let me pray, and then we will jump into our first attribute. Lord, you are, um, as we said last week, and as we just know, you are high and mighty. You are way 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 beyond us and so we just ask for your help that as we attempt to as I attempt to talk about you to talk about what you're like um, talk about your character talk about your nature that you would help me that you would help me not to get in the way that these words you've given me would be from you and if there's anything that needs corrected that you would do that even as I'm teaching Um, I pray that your spirit would just help us to receive from your word what you have for us that um that you would just help us do what we can't do for ourselves, which is to know you and to love you more. So help us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first attribute we're going to look at in this series is God's aseity, which may be a new word for you. The word comes from the Latin phrase, a se. So two words, a and then se. So a say, we say aseity. And the word, the phrase in Latin means, from or by one's self. So God's aseity, or for God to be ase, is for God to be from or by himself. God's aseity, or God being ase, means God as he is in his own self, by his own self, and, and of his own self. God's aseity is God's isness. It's just what God is. God's aseity is what sets him apart from creation as God. For God to be ase means that he is not dependent or derivative of anything. He has no need or lack. He is self-sufficient and self-satisfied. He is absolutely independent. He simply is. Another way to say it is to say that God is solitary. He is in a class of his own. There is nothing in all of existence like him. He defies comparison because he is so other than. He is in a very real sense alone, separate, one of a kind. And his kind is of such a different nature that it cannot be compared with or related to other kinds of being. He is utterly unique. God is a say. I made this definition page, which I'll try to have um, for you each week. And Kenny actually made some really cool cutouts for junior hires if you want to grab one up here afterwards. Um, so here are some definitions. The ones that Merriam-Webster... And dictionary.com give, which I actually thought for like non-theological dictionaries, those are pretty great definitions. So snag, snag a picture of that or I can send it in the group me if you want it. But the bottom where it says doctrine, this is what we as student ministries, if you don't know, junior high and high school are doing the same series, talking about the same attributes of God. And this is kind of the definition that we've come to and, um, and how we'll talk about it. So God's aseity means that God is perfectly self-sufficient in himself, wholly independent of anything outside himself and utterly unique as himself. And then you'll see a scripture passage there that we will get to later. God's aseity means God is perfectly self-sufficient in himself, wholly independent of anything outside himself and utterly unique as himself. When we are talking about God's aseity, we are talking about his godness, His being the ultimate reality behind which there is nothing else. All that God is, is why he is ase. Or to say it another way, God's aseity is the basis for everything else that God is. For all of his attributes. God is one and so all of his attributes like the failed color analogy are really just our way of interpreting the oneness of God through these different colors that we see. And God's aseity though is better seen through certain attributes. So God is love, of course, but that actually doesn't tell us much about God's aseity, about his godness, because we love and we have understandings of love. But there are other attributes that are only true of God, that really get at God's uniqueness, God's independence, God's unneeding of anything else. And so I just want us to look at a few of those real quick. And so aseity is our attribute for the night, but there are a few attributes that aseity shines most clearly through when you think about them. So first and foremost is God is Trinity. Now, this is less of an attribute of God and just who God is, but it is so vital. Like if we're going to talk about the nature and character of God, we have to talk about the triunity of God God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one essence. These three are co-equally, co-equally God and they are utterly one. If you're trying to conceive of how that could be possible, I'll save you the time. You can't. It is far beyond us. Our minds cannot wrap around the immense magnitude of God's Trinity, of being three persons in one. So three persons, one essence, co God. The New Testament refers to God the Father. And so we have one, God the Father. He is clearly God. He's referred to that way over and over and over again. Many places refer to Jesus as God. He claims to be God himself. And then in the rest of the New Testament, it is clearly talked about Jesus as God, including um, Titus 2.13. It's really clear. Paul calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Acts 5.4, Ananias is asked, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to, be, to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who's Ananias lying to? He's lying to the Holy Spirit. He had brought a certain tithe and he lied about the amount. So he's lying to the Holy Spirit. But then Peter continues in that passage, you have not lied to humans, but to God. So in lying to the Holy Spirit, He has lied to God, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit is God. We could spend our entire night, I mean, it would take multiple nights, to go to the different passages in Scripture that talk about God being Trinity. And it's not just a New Testament thing. If you look back to the Old Testament, at least the view I take, when God in the garden says, let us make man in our image. What do you mean, God? You're one. Yes, and he is triune. He is three persons in one. And so all throughout the Bible, this concept that we cannot perfectly wrap our hands or our minds around is presented that God is three in one. And I just want to point out a couple things that God's three in oneness teaches us, what his triunity teaches us about God's being a say. First, God's three in oneness or his trinity, his triunity, is what separates the Christian conception of God from all other human conceptions of God, sorry, all other religions and views of God fail because they fail to account for his tri-unity. There is nothing in existence like God or even comparable to God because there is nothing else that is Trinity. This is why no analogy of the Trinity works. People try to talk about eggs or an ice cube and talk about these analogies for God and they all fail. There is nothing in creation that even begins to be exactly comparable to three persons in one essence, nothing in comparison to our God, and so triunity, God's trinity, His triunity is what renders Him utterly unique, and in a class of His own. Second, God being Trinity means that God has no lack or need. Now, because we know that, we probably know that. Growing up, in church, if you're around God at all, yeah, God doesn't have a lack or need. He's God, but the Trinity reveals something really specific about that. It's not just that God doesn't need food or need your money or material things. God does not need in another way. God, in eternity past, before he created a thing, was not lonely. He had no need for creation or angelic creatures to commune with. God, in himself, was perfectly satisfied, perfectly happy, as Father... Son, and Spirit. There was no lack in that fellowship. It could not be improved upon. They needed nothing because they had each other and were perfectly content in that way. The Trinity did not look at one another one day and say, you know what, this is really nice, really nice, guys, really nice. But it could be even nicer if we created some stuff to enjoy ourselves with. That's not what we would like ever say we think God actually did. But when you think about, like, why are we here? Why do you exist? Why does the world exist? Why does creation exist? Why do you as an individual exist? Implicit in our thought isn't some conception that, well, like God was fine, but like we improve things a little bit. Or like He there was something lacking. Otherwise, why else would we be here? And that is exactly wrong. It's exactly not the case. God is Trinity. God is, I say, God was and is perfectly happy in and by Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. He has existed in the most blessed community from eternity past. He has no need, no relational need. God has no need of you or of me. He has absolutely no need. He is perfectly content in and of Himself as Father. Son, and Spirit. Now, what that means for our existence, like, why are we here then? And what should we do with that information? Because that maybe doesn't feel good. We'll talk about in our application. But God is a say, because God is Trinity, which means that he is utterly unique and has no need whatsoever, not even of us. The next attribute of God that sheds light on his aseity is his eternity, this one takes less explanation. God has always existed and will always exist and has always done so just as he does now. He has never changed in eternity past and he will never change in the future. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we saw in 2 Peter, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Why? Because God is outside of time. God created time itself. Before he did so, there was no time. There just was God in his self-existence and there is no other thing like that. Every other being, angels, us, everything, had a beginning date because they were created. But God, that is not the case with him. He just has always been and just always will be. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and he is eternity. Maybe the most clear way to say it is to actually say it the other way around. It's less that God is eternal and more so that eternity is God. Now, here's what I mean. Eternity is not a concept outside of God that God fits the bill for. There exists nothing apart from God. That's part of what it means for God to be a say. So there can't be this thing out there called eternity, and because God has existed forever, he fits that bill. Instead, the way it actually works, when we talk about eternity, what we're just talking about is God's existence in terms of time. When we talk about eternity or eternal, really the more clear way to say it would just be to say God's forever existence or just how God has existed Because there is no thing called eternity outside of him. Eternity just is what God is. Eternity is what God is in terms of time. And so when you look up the word eternity in the dictionary, it shouldn't read forever. I mean, that's fine that it does, I get it. But what really should be listed is God's infinite existence expressed in terms of time. We as humans can only think in terms of time. We, we need language to talk about things. or It would just all be chaos. And so when we talk about a grand reality like God who exists outside of time, we still have to talk about how he has existed outside of time. And our word for that just is eternity. And so, and that's is really the reason I make a big deal about this is because in apologetics, when you talk about, well, how has God always existed forever or where did God come from? This is a really important thing to say, well, well God's not in time. God isn't in definition by time. And so God is not even eternal in that sense because that would be God subscribing or being uh, fitting the bill for a concept that is not him. Eternity just is who God is. It is just God's forever existence we express in terms of time because we are creatures who live inside of time. I know that's heady. I know that's crazy. But for like the two of you that connected with, yeah. So unlike anything else in creation, God is a say because he has always existed. That's what we mean by eternity. God, this is God's always existence. Thirdly, God is a say because of his uncreatedness. I don't know if you've ever talked with an atheist. This gets back to the, applica- or the uh, apologetic point. But I don't know if you've ever talked with an atheist about God, but in my experience, one of the first questions that they will go to and they present it as kind of a gotcha question is, oh yeah, well then who created God? And it's like the big question, well, if God created everything, who created God? And the answer, of course, to that is no one created God. That's the whole point. If someone was to create God, God would not then be God. The thing that created him would be God, and the thing that created that God is uncreated. Creation is a creation of God. Existence, in our terms, is a creation of God. God just was there before anything, doing his thing, father, son, spirit, totally happy, totally fine. And then he created everything. There would be nothing besides him. And so the question who created God doesn't make sense because God by definition is uncreated. He just is. He just has always been. And so they might ask, so where did he come from? The answer is God came from nowhere. And no thing, everything else has come from God. That is the doctrine of God's uncreatedness in a nutshell. God derives from nothing and everything derives from him. You and I, we think in terms of starts and ends, of coming from somewhere and of going to something because as created things ourselves, that's how we experience life. That's how we do exist. That's how the whole shindig works. We exist in time and there was a point when we did not and so we had to have had an origination point. But God is totally unlike that. As we said, God is outside of time because even time was created by him. There was a time when time did not exist. So God had no beginning and will have no end because those are only creaturely realities. God is uncreated. He just always has and always will exist. He is the fountainhead of all creaturely existence. Everything that is in the physical and spiritual realms comes from, derives from him. And so God is a say because God just is. He comes from nothing and all things come from him. Ultimately, God is a say because God, because had God not created he would still be happily existing in and by himself as Trinity. No time, no created things, just God in his supreme blessedness, enjoying himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, totally content, totally satisfied, totally happy, coming from nowhere, needing nothing, absolutely self-sufficient and self-reliant, solitary in his supremacy. This is what God's aseity means. Now, let's open our Bibles to actually see what it says about this. The entire Bible taken together really is what teaches God's aseity. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 17 because it says it really succinctly and very clearly, this idea of God's aseity. But really, the way you see God's aseity is you read through the Bible. You, you see the character and the nature of God as it's presented through the Bible and you see him presented as totally unique, totally self-sufficient, totally independent, needing nothing but giving Everything. Um, But we do want to look at a specific passage that, while not using the Latin phrase because the Bible is written in Latin, teaches God's aseity. So turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to spend some time there and draw in some other uh, passages that help make the point. So Paul is in um, Athens. It's really cool actually, he's talking to all these Greek philosophers and they kind of think he's a weirdo and they're like, let's see what this babbler has to say. They call him a babbler. And so this is Paul's presentation and we're going to jump into it at verse 22 of chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And this is the main chunk we're going to look at. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation and mankind of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. And then Paul continues to go on. So let's walk through together Paul's description of God real slowly. He says first, this is verse twenty-four. The God who made the world and everything, being Lord of heaven and earth, a.k.a. God is the creator of all things. He is the maker of everything in existence. And if that is the case, then he is himself uncreated. All things derive from him because he derives from nothing else. He is the originator of all things. This puts God in a class of his own. There are two categories of being, the creator and the creation. And there is an infinite gap separating those two groups. In fact, God is so unique as the uncreated one that to even contrast him with his creation like that, to even say there is an infinite gap between him and his creation is to relate him with it too closely. They are just so incomparable as creator creator and creation. The infinite gap between them is far too wide to even compare the two. God's creation of all things necessitates that he himself is uncreated. And the fact of his uncreatedness is the basis for his uniqueness. And not like we use the word unique, like there's kind of the weird kid at school there that everybody calls, oh, he's so unique. Like, no, God's uniqueness in his singularity, in his there is no one else like him. There is nothing like him to even be compared to. He is solo. He is alone. God is the maker of all things. He is the underivative deriver. As, human, or as Romans eleven thirty six says, from him and through him and to him are all things. And Colossians 1, or Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And Psalm 95 through through five. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry lands. God is a say. God is self-sufficient, independent, unique, because he made the world and everything it. And this is the constant testimony of Scripture. I listed three places there could be hundreds. Second thing Paul says about God. Paul says that God does not live in temples made by man. We may think that's obvious, but for all other religions at the time, and even most of them today, uh, besides Judaism at the time and even Judaism today, gods did live in temples. At least their representations did, if not them themselves. But Yahweh, The triune God is not like other gods. Paul says that he does not dwell in temples. The God of the Bible is unlike all others. He is alone in his uniqueness. This is a constant refrain of the Old Testament. But We're just going to look at two places. You can turn with me because they're longer sections or we'll be right back to Acts 17 if you want. This is Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So the nations ask, like Israel, like, where's their God? Because they don't have idols. So they're like, Yeah, they don't even have a God. Israel's response in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them, boom roasted. God is not like other gods. While Israel's God is unable to be seen, unlike the idols of the nations, he is in the heavens doing all that he pleases. While the idols of the nations, even though they're able to be seen, because they're able to be seen, because they're the work of human hands, do, say, hear, smell, nothing. Another place, Psalm 96, one through six. And again, we're just getting the tip of the iceberg of all the different scripture we could go to, but Psalm 96, one through six. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, sing to Yahweh all the earth, sing to Yahweh, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for or because. Great is Yahweh. And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Again, the gods of the nations, and not just the nations then, the gods of today, are nothing but worthless idols. While, Yah- while Yahweh, made the heavens, not just is in them, made the heavens. What temple could contain him? He made the entire cosmos. What idol or image could capture his glory? The heavens declare it, and yet even they do not do him justice. God is a God like no other. God is God, and there is no other. God is the only assay. The only one from himself. He is by himself in every sense imaginable, no idol, no religion, no thing we could ever worship, whether it be a different God, or things we think of, like a job or money or power or sex or fame. Search far and wide, you will find nothing that holds a candle to this God. He is say. He is perfectly self-sufficient in himself, wholly independent of anything outside of himself, and utterly unique as himself. Who or what is like him? And finally, Paul says this in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God owns and gives everything, which is why God has no need of anything. What could be given to him if it is all his? That's the idea of Psalm 50. You don't need to turn there, but Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine. This is Yahweh speaking. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. God needs nothing. He is perfectly self-sufficient. This is true in material ways, but it's also true as we've seen when it comes to you and me. God does not need us. And not even just in material things, like he doesn't need us to give Him things. God does not even need our worship. He doesn't need it. He commands it. He commands that you worship him, but he does not need your worship. You and I don't exist because God even needs our worship. That is actually the context of Psalm 50. God is talking about with all those different animals, the sacrifices they bring. And he's saying, I don't need these things. Like you're bringing them to me like you're doing me a favor, like you're putting me in your debt. I own everything. I don't need your worship, but I do command it. Our God is not an insecure preteen who needs to be told they're pretty. God is not a lonely grandma who wishes her grandkids would just come over a little more often. God is not an insecure boyfriend who needs to be reassured that he really is all that great. God is well aware of his worth. (laughs) He is far more aware of it than us. He is aware of it in its infinite amount. God is perfectly relationally content as the Trinity. He does not need us as friends. God does not need you or me for anything. If he did, he would have a lack and therefore not be God. If God needed us in any way, we would be God to him in some way. No, as shocking as it is for our millennial and Gen Z ears to hear because we've been told the opposite our whole lives, someone finally does not need us. Someone's world finally does not revolve around us. God has existed in eternity past perfectly fine without any of us or any other created thing. And had he not created anything, he would have continued to do the same forever and ever and ever. God needs nothing because God is a say. And because God is a say, he needs nothing. God is perfectly sufficient in himself, wholly independent of anything outside of himself, and utterly unique as himself. God is a say. What does that mean for us? When we see what we've been looking at tonight, what are like the poor, pitiable creatures that we are in comparison supposed to do? How does knowledge of God's aseity propel our love for him? What are we to do with all this? Here's the number one thing and the main thing I hope you get. Please know that while God does not need you because he is assay, God does want you. And that is far better news we think what we want is to be needed when in actuality what we need as image bearers is to be wanted to be wanted is far better than to be needed because it means that we are wanted for who we are rather than what we can do for someone and because god is a say this is especially true of his wanting us god is not trying to fill a void with us And so his love for you has no selfish intent at all. He doesn't want you because he needs anything from you. He doesn't want you for something you can do for him. He doesn't want you for what you can offer him. He has all that he needs. Everything is his. So he just wants you because he wants you, not anything you can offer him. Think about that. This God who is a say, the God who is self-sufficient and independent, and unique. The God whose being is the definition of eternity. The God who is Trinity, existing in perfect relationship with himself forever. The God who created all and owns all and sustains all. The God who is far beyond and better than any conception we can have of him. The God who was and is and will be. The God who is, say, this God wants you, desires you, seeks you, literally dies so that he can have you. Not because you have anything he needs, but simply because he loves you and wants you. God wants us. And his aseity makes that fact unexpectedly astounding. So know that the God who needs nothing and has everything, who is from himself, the God who is perfectly self-sufficient in himself, wholly independent of anything outside of himself, and utterly unique as himself, wants each and every one of you. So much so that he died to have you. Oh my. Second. Second thing we do, I think, in light of his aseity of his isness, of his godness, of just his being who he is, is that we go up further and further into the inexhaustible riches of his being. Nothing will grow your knowledge of God like staring at him in his brilliance as he has revealed himself in his word. And what does that knowledge do? As we've been talking about, it grows our affections for him. The more of God's glory we see, the more beautiful we truly see him as he actually is, the more real he becomes to us, his true self, the more our affections grow for him. So look and look and look and look and look at him. Meditate on the infinite reality of his being. Spend time considering his perfections, all the things that make him God. Ascend further and further and further up the mountain of his glory. And when you arrive at the peak, and you gasp in awe at all that God is, look up and realize there is an infinite amount of peaks left to be ascended and go up and go up and go up further and further and further into the infinite being reality of God and find there your greatest joy and satisfaction and with each further step, watch your heart soar in glad adoration of this God who makes himself known to you and never stops. Climbing his glory cannot be exhausted, his beauty cannot be plumbed, his joy cannot be drunk dry so stare at him in wonder, know him, and by doing so love him and never ever stop. I want to do just that by in closing tonight, so I want us to stare at god 's godness so I picked a passage um, I just want us to read together. Actually, if you would stand, I'd love us to just stand and read this passage together. This is Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 28. I picked this passage very early in the week, and then today I was working on the application and came up with the mountain metaphor I just used, which if it's anything like last week's analogy, that was a total miss. But I picked the passage early in the week, and then this this afternoon really landed on the mountain thing, and then went back to like look at this passage and found of course, it's about a mountain because God is amazing. So, this is um, Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 28. If you'll just stare with me at the incredible reality that our God is. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his, arms, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, which is a place with a lot of trees, would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it, crafts it, and goldsmith lays overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one missing. Who do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from, the, from Yahweh and my right is disregarded by him. My God, have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God. God. The creator of the ends of the earth he does not faint or grow weary he is understanding his understanding is unsearchable let's pray